Morning, everybody. Glad you're here. Welcome to the online audience, as Michael said. Um, before we get into Romans, I want to catch you up on a detail that you uh, probably wouldn't be aware of, unless you were at the Saturday night service or in the 815. Um, last week, how many were here for John Palmer's update on the building? Um, pretty good majority of us that are in here. So anybody here happen to remember the percentage that John said that we were at right now? 73%, that's right, he said 73, and um, I told you shortly after John made his presentation that it would be necessary for us to be at 80%. The leadership had discussed that once we hit the 80% level of funding, that we would be able to uh, begin the building project. And I said to you at that time, we really hope that that happens by April 1st, and so we're encouraging people to jump in. So I had no idea what God was going to do this week, and I want you to see this little graph that Jody's going to put on the screen. So in one week, if you read the very top graph bar, you see that $402,000 came in this week. Yeah, isn't that amazing? So you see the little red guy on the end of the 80% mark with his arms in the air, right? Thank you, Darla, for putting that together. So um, we actually, yesterday at 1045 in the morning, crossed the 80% threshold. And I, I got a call from an individual who said, hey, this is what we want to do to help push it over the 80%. And I tell you, I got a grin on my face, and it didn't go away all day long. My cheeks actually hurt by the middle of the afternoon because of what God did in this very short period of time. I'm just impressed with how you all respond to the activity of God. It's just amazing to be part of this and be able to join him in the work that he's doing. So... Thank you. Thanks for the role that you're serving and the way that you're praying and continue to pray because we still have 20% more funding to go, but we're at the point now where the building planning team can just say to the contracting crew, go ahead and get the bids because uh, we're ready to roll this thing out. So pretty exciting stuff. Well, yeah, absolutely. I'm going to ask you to, if you brought your Bible, go over to Romans chapter 8 with me. And if you didn't bring one, maybe it's on your phone or your uh, pad. Um, if you maybe want to grab one of the Bibles in the rack, you can follow along that way. If you're new to New Hope or maybe you don't own a Bible, we've got free Bibles in the back. I want to encourage you to grab one and um, pick one up of your own. They're on that brown table in the back. You can get one when you leave this morning. I'm convinced after probably 20 years of wrestling through this issue um, that I vastly I probably should incorporate you into this because I'm sure that this is the case with you. I vastly misunderstand the glory of God. I think that's probably true of all of humanity. God's purposes don't always make sense to us. We try and put them together, but we vastly misunderstand the glory of God. Therefore, we vastly misunderstand God's purposes. God does what he does, and he puts it in black and white for us, and we hold his purposes in our hand when we open the Bible, and he explains them, but just trying to wrap our mind around it is so enormous. So when we come to an issue like predestination, um, it, it causes us to pause and say, I, I don't get it. I'm trying to make sense of this. I want to go back with you to where we left off last week. We talked about God foreknowing, which equates to foreloving and predestination and pick it up from there. So look with me on the screen or maybe you're in your own Bible if you have it open at verse 29, Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. 
I want to argue with you this morning. I want to present and make an argument that I believe that predestination is the reasonable action of God. Predestination is the reasonable action of a God who knows you intimately and loves you profoundly. So I'm going to suggest to you that as you work through the passage this morning, you're going to see that come off the pages. That predestination is a representation of a God who loves you and knows you so well that predestination is his action. It has to be the reasonable action of God. So imagine God coming to this planet for the purpose of wanting you. God willing to leave the throne of glory, coming to this planet because he wants you. And in the midst of the wanting of you, it's going to have to cost him something. There's, there's a purchase involved. And it won't be something as trivial as material goods or something as minutia as money. It's going to require him to empty himself of everything. So with that thought in mind, ask yourself this question. Would the king of glory, would the king of kings leave everything and come to this planet that you might respond that maybe you might respond to his activity. Would the king of kings come and leave it to chance that you might respond to his activity? In other words, if God had not predestined, would we seek him on our own? If we think back over the history of man, would we say that history demonstrates that mankind of their own free will moves closer and closer to God? or further and further away from God? What does our history demonstrate about our activity? Well, our our history demonstrates that both fallen man, and by that I mean all of humanity since Adam and Eve, and unfallen mankind, Adam and Eve, choose to move further away from God as opposed to further to God. So, would Jesus shed his blood in vain or... Does our God, could it be new hope that God so loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son, not only as a sacrifice to buy you back, but also that he would not leave his creation to this inevitable pattern of rejection, 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 constantly moving away from him? Can we conceive that the king of glory would ever give himself over to bear our sin and then leave it to mere chance that you would experience his grace and his mercy and his compassion? Well, as you see, according to God's word, it wasn't left to chance. He didn't leave it to chance. From eternity past, you were given to Jesus. I don't know if you've ever thought about that before. God says you are a gift. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, God sees you as a gift to the Son, saved by his own blood. And, get your amens ready, as a result of being saved by his blood, he never, ever will lose even one of us. Can't do that. Jesus sums up predestination in his own words. And you'll see predestination all over this passage. Look with me on the screen at John 10, 27. I know them, think about the foreknowing we talked about last week, I know them, I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. 
My Father who has given them to me. You see in the predestination? My Father who has given them to me. You can't give something if you don't have it. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Predestination is the reasonable response of a God who knows you intimately and loves you profoundly. And you'll find that you're predestined not only to come into relationship with him, but one day to be fully conformed to the image of Jesus. And that's what we're going into this morning. I'm going to pray with you before we jump into it full force. But let me just show you the verses that we're going to cover. Verses 29 and 30. Look with me on the screen. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Remember the reason this was written? This was meant to strengthen you in the worst of things that you're going through right now, And in the best of things you're going through right now, this was meant to strengthen you, that God's working ultimately all things together, all things together for your good, not your immediate good, but for your ultimate good. I know of someone in this church who was just this week diagnosed with cancer. They don't feel like it's an immediate good right now. But Scripture says it's for your ultimate good. God's working all things together for your ultimate good in the worst of things and in the best of things. With that in mind, let's pray that God will illuminate our minds this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for every single person in this auditorium, all those who are watching online right now. And we pray that as a result of our time spent in your word, that you would indeed do what only you can do, that you would cut us to the very core prick our minds, Father. You said that your word is sharper than a two-edged sword. We, We can best compare that to a scalpel, God, that you can cut deeply and you can reveal and discern the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. So God, I ask that you would do that right now. Illuminate our mind as we look at your word. We pray for that because of the activity of the Holy Spirit and the Lord Jesus Christ who wants us to know you better. We ask for that in his name. Amen. He predestined us, it says, to be conformed to the image of his son. So look at that statement on the screen. Verse 29. Let's just break it down to that statement. He predestined us for this reason, to become conformed. Now, last week we talked about foreknowing. We talked about predestined. And Paul said, there's a reason why God predestined. There's a reason why God foreknows you. It is for this reason, to become conformed. So how do I understand the conforming? What does that look like? Well, you might want to write this down in your notes. I can't remember if it made it into your notes, but these two issues are going to go up on the screen for you. So we can clarify this thought of conforming. What does it mean when it says, I'm being conformed? Well, there's two aspects to it. There's, there's one aspect in which it's happening right here, right now on planet Earth, in which you're being conformed into the image of Christ. And there's a second one that will be realized in eternity. So here's the first one. The first one that's here on Earth is that we're beginning to become conformed to the mind of Christ, that we begin thinking like Jesus thought, that we begin having the thoughts of his, and it happens gradually over time. That's the heart of sanctification, Let me give you a verse that represents this. You see it on the screen, Philippians 2, 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, 
but with a humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but for the interest of others. Have this attitude, and this is talking about the mindset, the mindset of a believer. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Remember that this passage is talking to believers? He's saying this to church people. Get, get your mind right. Don't be selfish. Put other people's interests first. Why do we have to say that to church people? Well, because it isn't instantly downloaded into us. We don't begin behaving and thinking like Jesus immediately just because we became a believer. Can I get a witness? We, we don't. We'd like to. We'd like to have Christ-like thoughts all the time, but we're torn. We're, we're pulled back into these fleshly thoughts all the time. And so we, we begin shaping our mind, and that happens through the work of the Holy Spirit. It is a lifetime process. Now, that's the first one. Here's the second one. There's a future conformity that's going to happen. Your physical body is going to be conformed into the likeness of Christ. There's going to be a realization at the resurrection. When you die and you translate over to eternity, there's going to be a change that takes place. Either at your resurrection or at the moment that you die, when you enter into eternity, a transformation and God's going to glorify you according to the passage that we're looking at. Here's an example from Philippians 3.20. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has, even to subject all things to Himself. Both of these things that we're talking about, both of these issues, they're the culmination of the conformity. Ultimately, that you're going to look like Jesus one day. So there's a metamorphosis on the first basis that's taking place right now. We use that term metamorphosis in the English language, but it actually is a Greek word. Let me show you where it's used. It's in 2 Corinthians 3.18. But we all, with unveiled faces, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. If you look in your notes this morning, you see that word, metamorpho. That's where we get the English word, metamorphosis. Look with me on the screen at the definition. It's, it matches exactly what you understand. There's a transformation, a transfiguration. So ask yourself this question right now. Am I thinking differently than I used to think? Am I speaking differently than maybe I did five years ago? Is my mindset being shaped to the image of Christ? Are the things of this world becoming of less value to me and the things of eternity becoming of higher value to me? That's the metamorphosis that he's talking about here. We're being transformed. So catch this. Jesus came in our likeness that we would be made into his likeness. Remember the Christmas card verse you get from lots of people around December? It says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. You get it all over Christmas cards all the time. That's talking about him coming in our likeness. The word became flesh. He came and dwelt with us. And he was like us. Why did he do that? He came to be among us that we would be like him. That's the transformation we're talking about. 1 John 3, 2 speaks to that. Beloved, now we are children of God and has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him. It's going to happen. It's a, it's a future thing because we shall see him just as he is. 
Uh, you and I, we all share a common physical form. We, we have lungs that breathe oxygen just like the other person sitting next to you. We have hearts that pump blood just like the other person sitting next to you. But we all look differently. Some of us are taller, some of us are shorter, some of us are wider, some of us are skinnier. We have distinct personalities. We are unique individuals. Well, in the same way, when you have that ultimate glorification, when you step into eternity, you will be individually distinguished, remarkably different, yet all of the same people who will be glorified by God. As an example of that, the Bible records the reappearance of individuals who died, went to heaven, but then came back at the moment of Jesus' transfiguration Think of him on the mountain. He's still on planet Earth. He hasn't been crucified yet, but he goes up what they call the Mount of Transfiguration. And in that moment, Peter and John and James are with him. And they recognize two individuals that appear with Jesus. Jesus begins glowing bright white, and then Moses and Elijah show up. And we're told in that moment, they immediately recognize Moses and Elijah. No, Peter and James and John didn't live in Old Testament times. How could they know that's Moses and Elijah? Well, there's something remarkable about them, something that distinguishes them, that makes them identifiable. I am confident that when you step into eternity one day, you're going to be able to identify your friends, your family members, your loved ones who have gone before you. Will they be glorified? Absolutely. But will they be identifiable for sure? Lori and I lost three children in our early years of marriage, three babies that died during um, pregnancy, that were miscarriages. And I'm sure of this very day that those three little kringlings are running around in eternity. And I'm going to be able to point them out one day. I think they're going to look like little krings. I'll be able to pick them out and identify them. Glorified, absolutely, but distinguishable. Now, that's physically Physically, we'll be able to identify each other, but more importantly, our bodies are going to be infused with the holiness of Jesus. How amazing is that? So outwardly perfect, but inwardly perfect at the same time. Because God's supreme purpose for salvation is not just saving you. Saving you, yes, but to make you into the image of Jesus. See, it's all about the preeminence of God. Now, that's the first half. Here's the second half. Why is he doing this? That he, according to Scripture, verse 29, that he would be the firstborn among many. Now, I want you, and I don't mean this in a derogatory way or a non-theological way, but just hear me on this. I want you to begin thinking of Jesus like your big brother. I don't know if you had a big brother in your life. Maybe you are the big brother in your family. I probably should have called my brothers and sisters because I'm the big brother in my family. I should have called them this week and asked them if I was a good big brother. Because I'm thinking I probably pounded on them a lot. Yeah, that's, that's my memory at least. Um, not being such a good big brother. But regardless of your image of your big brother at this moment, begin thinking of Jesus according to this passage as your big brother. And I'm going to show you theologically why I say it that way. In the Old Testament culture, if you could live in that period of time, you would understand that the firstborn had a very preeminent position in the family, one of privileged status. So the term firstborn immediately triggers in the mind of Bible people preeminence because the firstborn son, firstborn male, 
always got to determine things for the family as the dad aged out. So the firstborn male would determine how the family would invest their fortunes. What kind of crops would they plant? How would they manage their livestock? Where would the money go as investments? How would they worship as a family? Ultimately, the firstborn male even received a double portion of the inheritance. So when you think firstborn, you have to begin thinking preeminent position. Now, when you go over to the New Testament, you find that Jesus is not only referred to as the head of the church in a preeminent position, but also, according to Colossians 1.18, he's called the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Now, it's not talking about Jesus being the firstborn person, not like he's a created being, but it's talking about a position of preeminence, preeminent in everything. Why? So that he himself might come to have first place in everything. So God's purpose, once again, God's purpose is that he would be the firstborn among many brethren, if you finish out verse 29. Now, in the New Testament, you find the term brethren is synonymous for believers. Are you a believer in Jesus this morning? If, if you are, Scripture looks at you as a brother or a sister. If you're new to church and you hear people referring to other individuals as brothers and sisters, it comes right from the Bible. This is why. I know you're church people, so you understand this, that those who trust in Jesus are adopted into God's family as his children. So in verse 29, when the term brethren is used, there's this sense of Jesus being uniquely preeminent as the older brother, the firstborn among many brethren of the adopted children of God. So Jesus is the true son, and he graciously refers to you as his brothers and sisters. Did you know that? It's a beautiful description that God has an older brother status for Jesus. Let me show you this on the screen, Matthew twelve fifty. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven... He is my brother and sister. Isn't that cool? Now, put all of that together, church, and this portion that we've just looked at. Look with me on the screen at this statement, Romans 8, 29 and 30. To become conformed to the image of his son, that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. So here's what God's doing. God's calling you and I to look like Jesus in how we act how we walk, how we talk, the decisions that we make. What kind of decisions did you make this last week? Does it reflect the image of Jesus in your life? Because ultimately, God says, I'm going to make you into the likeness of Jesus. You're going to have a glorified body when you step into eternity. Because if we don't bear a family resemblance, if there isn't a familiarity, the purposes of God will not be realized. And he would never leave that to chance. So he takes that upon himself. That's why I say predestination is the reasonable action of a God who knows you well and loves you profoundly because he knows us. Let's finish this out now. Go with me to verse 30. It'll move very quickly now. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. You're looking at a sequence of action here in God saving you. Are, are you a believer this morning? Do you belong to Jesus? Look at that verse. 
God's describing for you how he brought you in and made you his own. Do you notice the five major elements that are there? Not only does God foreknow you, forelove you, not only does God predestine, but look at how it's written in the past tense. Look very closely. He called, he justified, he glorified. Do you notice that's past tense, church? How can he speak of it in that way? He's speaking of it as though it's already happened because God's not bound by time. He's not limited by the day and by the clock like you and I are. So there's a sense in which this is not only sequential, but simultaneous, that it happened all at once. Your security in Jesus is so absolute. It's spoken of as though it's already occurred. So let's break those statements down. Those whom he called, those whom he justified, those whom he glorified, those whom he called. What's it talking about there? This is talking about the power of God to regenerate, the power of God to bring life from death. Think Lazarus. Lazarus, come forth. We talked about that last week. God speaking life where there was death. And I told you there was two calls. There's the external call in which God's word goes out. That's the gospel. God's word goes out and calls everyone to respond to it. But then there's the internal call. Now, the external call is not received by everybody. It's what I do here on a weekly basis. When I talk about Jesus and I call people to respond, that's the external call of God, asking them to respond to God's invitation. But not everybody responds to that, meaning ultimately not everybody is justified because not everybody responds to God's invitation. But here, Paul's talking about the internal call where the word comes in power, the power of God to call life from death. And in response, we turn from darkness to light. Here's a case in point for you. This last week, Gary sent me a note on Tuesday of an individual he was talking with and was able to lead that person to faith in Christ. Now, I was smiling because Gary described the circumstances to me, and I left here last week and after teaching on predestination in four services thinking, man, God, only you could write about things about predestination. We don't understand it, but you can bring sense out of it. But sometimes you feel like when you, you deliver the truth of God's word, it makes it just off the edge of the platform and drops right there. It just, it doesn't go out. And, and you can find your sense, feeling a sense of man's incompleteness, our inability to express what God does. So I get this text from Gary on Tuesday, and he says, hey, I, I uh, led a young man to faith in Christ this week. I just wanted you to know that he's new to church, and um, his first time at New Hope was hearing you teach on predestination. And so I'm thinking to myself, wow, God, even out of predestination, the power of your word goes forward. See, it's not based in man's ability. It's not man's power, it's God's power to speak through his word and to call from death back to life, to bring an individual into faith. So in this case, what you find Paul describing here, this calling he's speaking of, it's God's invitation in which at some point in your life, if you're a believer this morning, you responded positively. When that call came forward, that's God's call upon you. Uh, very interesting, you find a merge of those two things in Paul talking about this very issue in 1 Corinthians 2. He talks about man's ability versus God's ability. Watch how he describes it. My message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, 
but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of man, but on the power of God. Amen. Amen and amen. It's not about what I do. It's about how God speaks through his word and brings life from that. So those whom he called, and then we lead into these whom he justified. And you know that happens in the instant that you believe? In the moment, there's nothing more that you need to do. In the moment that you believe, God justified you, meaning he forgave you of your sins past, present, whatever sins might be going through your head right now, whatever thought life might be bouncing around inside your brain. Jesus said even those produce sin. Future also. He justified you as a result of the life of Jesus being sacrificed He died for past, present, and future sins. They're blotted out the moment that you surrender to Jesus. So Paul uses this term justified. If you're new to church and you're wondering, well, what is Mark talking about? Justified means being made right with God by God. Being made right with God by God. That's what justification is. Do you want to be right with God today? Jesus can do that for you. He can blot out all of your sins whatever sins you haven't even committed yet, because it's called the effectual work, the finished work of Jesus Christ. Here's an example for you, Acts 13, 39. Through him, everyone who believes is freed from what, church? From all things, not just some things. Freed from all things. If you believe, you're freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses, meaning through works. There's things that you are tempted to do trying to earn God's favor. God says, no, it's a result of you believing. Here's another one. Let's go a step further. Hebrews 8, 12. For I will be merciful to their iniquities. He's quoting an Old Testament passage here. And I will remember their sins no more. Think about what you've learned in the last couple weeks about the omniscience of God. A God who never misses one detail, who can see the end from the beginning, who knows everything. Is that not a spectacular promise that a God who knows everything is willing to say, you know what, on this thing, I'm willing to let it go because of Jesus. I will remember their iniquities, their sins no more. In other words, a God saying, I'm willing to forget, even though I can't forget. I'm willing to do that because of Jesus. Now, here's the last one. These he glorified. So he called, he justified, these he glorified. This is the final link in the chain of God's purposes. We're very, very close to communion at this moment. We're about to participate in the lifting of the cup and the breaking of the bread. So Zone in on this last thought. These he glorified. The final link in the chain of God's promises and the term, the very way it's written, raises a problem for us. Because the Bible says your glorification is future. It's something that's waiting for you. It's out there. But God's speaking of it as certain as though it's already taking place, as though it's already now. You look good this morning, especially for being how early in the morning it is on a February day at 1027 in the morning. You look good, but you're going to look great one day. You're going to look amazing. Every one of us in the last 
eight weeks probably, brought a tree. We drag a, a tree into our house, right, to celebrate Christmas. And so we've got this evergreen thing, whether it's a fake one or a real one, doesn't matter. It, it's just the shape of a tree until your family gets a hold of it and you begin adorning it. So if you think of the word glorification, the synonym for that is to adorn. And what you let your family set loose on it, they begin hanging ornaments on it, and they begin putting lights on it, and some of you put tinsel on it, maybe you put a star on the top. What have you done? You've glorified that tree. You, you've made it spectacular, a sight item of, of focus, of, of beauty. This is really spectacular stuff that God says, ultimately, I'm going to glorify you. I'm going to put my glory on you. See, this is God's declaration that he's going to decorate you one day. Every believer moving unalterably towards the original purpose of God of having a people made in his own image according to his own likeness. So imagine 360 degrees. Go back with me to the beginning just 20 minutes ago. Imagine God coming to earth for the purpose of wanting you to the degree that he's willing to trade himself. In the wanting, he has to take an action. Because God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. No wonder you find the disciples writing about communion in the way that they do. No wonder you find Paul in Corinthians saying, I got this directly from Jesus. In the night that he sat in the upper room, he was betrayed. He held up bread. He said, this is going to represent my body, which is broken for you. I held up a cup. He said, this represents my blood. It's going to cost me everything. I'm going to shed it for you because I love you intimately and profoundly, and I know you need a rescuer. I want to read to you 1 Corinthians 11 the way that the Bible records it, and you just drink it in, in light of everything that we just talked about, of what God has done. And if you're new to New Hope, we, we do this. After we read the passage, we just take some time to really drink in the passage because it talks about us not coming to the table in an unworthy manner. So we give time for you to meditate on that. And when you're ready, you come on up to one of the tables, and there'll be somebody there who will remind you of what you're doing. Hear these words from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said... This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now listen to this, church, because this is what you're about to do. You're going to witness of the reality that the king of glory chose you. So he says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And he's coming again, right? So you got the reality sewn up in one statement. 
He died for you. He's coming again for you. So that's why Scripture says don't do this lightly. Do this with an understanding of what's at stake here. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. This time is for you to do that. Examine yourself when you're ready. Come to one of the tables and pick up the elements, and I'll talk you through the rest.